Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. You are listening to episode 8 of the Tennis Files podcast, Life on the Futures Tour with Colin Johns. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey guys, welcome to the Tennis Files podcast. For those of you who are new, uh, welcome to the show. And for those of you who are returning, uh, thank you, you're awesome. Uh, I hope you, everybody here is uh, getting to play as much tennis as possible. That's kind of warming up, at least around here on the East Coast, um, where I am in Maryland. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I hope you all are improving your game and uh, just trying to absorb as much information as you can. Um, I have a cool story for you guys. I actually went to visit one of my former coaches this past weekend at the Aspen Hill Club in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I was sitting and observing a lesson that he was giving to one of his students when somebody uh, looked at me, I was a random person in the club, and said, hey, I like your blog. And uh, I thought that was really cool, Um, you know, just kind of showing how uh, the stuff that I'm doing is reaching (laughs) at least one person. Um, But no, it's reaching people and helping them out and uh, it was definitely pretty cool to have that happen. So, uh, Yvette, shout out to you. Thanks so much for listening to this show and for uh, recognizing me in my uh, my mug. So, um, But today we have a great show for you. Um, I know a lot of people are really interested in how futures tournaments work. So they're, you know, like the beginning phases of a uh, professional player's career uh, when they work their way up the ladder from the futures to the challenger tournaments and then up to the uh, the biggest events. So we have for you Colin Johns, who is a native of Maryland and who I met through my good friend and former neighbor, Peter. Uh, hello to you, Peter. And um, yeah, it was just a great connection because he is a uh, very unique player, as you'll see in the interview, is his his playing style. Well, you know, the way he hits his shots, I guess I'll say. Uh, you'll find out about that later. And uh, really cool to hear about his upbringing and different ways he trained um, when he wasn't around a tennis court, as well as uh, just his meteoric rise from starting tennis, you know, pretty late and how he went from um, just a pretty average junior career to um, playing at the highest levels of the game. So you'll learn a lot about um, his career and uh, specifically the futures uh, circuit and how that all works and how, how tough it is to grind out points on the uh, on the tour. So without further ado, I bring you my interview with ATP Pro Colin Johns. I hope you really enjoy it. Hey, everybody. We're here with Colin Johns professional tennis player. He's 22 years old, originally from Maryland, and uh, he primarily plays on the Futures Tour. And he's been playing professionally for, uh, is it about three years now, Colin? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Awesome. And um, Colin has really had a a cool uh, 
I guess, experience on the tour. He's, he's picked up ATP points in really awesome places like South Africa, Israel, Mexico, Nicaragua. And uh, I wanted to bring him on the show today to just give you a glimpse into the life of players on the uh, Futures Tour and overall professionally. Colin, uh, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, how's everything going today? Oh, great. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Colin is actually a, a friend of uh, one of our mutual friends, Peter. And so it was really cool of Peter to um, you know, suggest that Colin be on the show. And uh, it's really, really happy to have him. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter's a good friend and I've uh, known him for a while. Yeah, he's definitely a great dude. So, Colin, uh, I guess with that, we'll just kind of delve into uh, your career. So kind of tell us how you first got into playing tennis. Um, I actually started uh, quite late. I was a baseball player growing up, and I actually didn't pick up tennis till I was 14 years old, and uh, I just discovered it on vacation. And uh, I really fell in love with it right away. Um, immediately uh, uh, started playing more and more. Um, but I still play baseball pretty much full-time until I was 16, where I eventually quit to, to focus on tennis and uh, started with some local tournaments, eventually progressed to a few nationals and uh, trained a little bit, looked at some colleges, and uh, decided to, to try it on the tour after that. Well, it's amazing um, how late you started and where you are now. Um, I guess two questions come up from that. One is, do you think your uh, baseball training helped you transition pretty well to tennis? Yeah, there there are definitely some similarities. Uh, I was a pitcher, so that uh, there are a lot of parallels between pitching and, and say serving, and uh, uh, just the the one on one aspect, uh, which I liked, and uh, the strategy, and uh, I just loved it right away. That's awesome, Colin. And um, as far as your your progression again, like you, you mentioned that you you were able to get into national tournaments a couple years after you started, which is, I mean, really sick. I mean, how exactly, uh, you know, what do you attribute to, to that uh, meteoric rise, if you will? Um, really a love of the game and just a lot, a lot of practice because I loved it so much. I wanted to be on the court as much as possible. And, uh, my parents are really supportive from the start. And, uh, I, I sort of, uh, picked up a different way of playing, um, since uh, coming over from baseball, I, I didn't really know tennis very well. I didn't get coaching early on. So uh, I started out with a one-handed backhand, or a, make that a two-handed backhand. And then I went to a one-handed backhand and then back to a two-handed backhand. And my dad, uh, he didn't know tennis at all, but uh, he's like, you know what? Uh, everyone's backhand seems to be worse than their forehand. Why doesn't someone just hit two forehands? I mean, people switch hit in baseball. And uh, we sort of talked about it. I thought about it. And uh, one day I just started fooling around with it in, uh, in our backyard my dad had uh, actually leveled our backyard into a dirt court and uh we got a ball machine and uh that whole summer i would just hit on the dirt court uh left-handed even though i'm a completely right-hand dominant person and uh i just i sort of fooled around with it in the beginning i stuck with it and i started using it in practice pretty quickly and uh i've been using it ever since then so uh i feel like uh it just a different sort of uh, style of play, and uh, a lot of practice brought me brought me up pretty quickly. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Yeah, I mean, that's really unique, obviously. Um, it's funny because I talked to uh, Tim from Sports World, who uh, is also a mutual friend of ours, and he told me uh, once he heard that I was going to interview you to ask you about the uh, one-handed forehand and backhand. Um, so what are some uh, pros and cons, in your opinion, of having uh, you know the one-handed backhand? Uh, the, the the lefty forehand? Or, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the yeah. left forehand, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say uh, there are a lot of uh, pros that that I can think of, like uh, the the extra reach, of course, um, the extra leverage, and people typically can hit a forehand harder and with more spin than a backhand, and uh, also the the difference because uh, you're not used to playing against two forehands. It sort of uh, uh, baffles people sometimes in the beginning, and uh, it can it can get you up early. And um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure. It's just uh, that, that's about all I can think of. Yeah, no, no, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I love the logic, too, because, I mean, it is very true that, like, it pretty much almost everyone's forehand is stronger than the, their backhand, so why not do it? Um, and so if you had to do it all over again, would you would you have a lefty forehand? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was very difficult in the beginning. Um, that, that was one of the things that I think le- more people would do it if it wasn't so difficult in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just really, really got to stick with it. And uh, I didn't really have much to lose because I was was I didn't have a good backhand in the beginning. Um, a lot of people that have been playing for years are like, "Well, why, why would I change to a lefty forehand? I would I would be terrible." But my backhand was so bad in the beginning. I'm like, "Well, what do I have to lose? It's going to be just as bad from the start anyway." And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that that uh, it was a good decision to stick with it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it, it's funny because. Uh... A lot of people try to teach the two-handed backhand by saying, "Oh, like you know, hit a bunch of lefty forehands because it's you dom- a lefty dominant for the uh, right-handed backhand." So why not just uh, do a lefty forehand? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, so yeah, I guess going back to your junior career, um, I'm wondering what point uh, in your junior career did you uh, begin to really move up the ranks, and like how, how did that work out for you? Uh, I started playing tournaments fairly quickly um in 14 just some local tournaments very very low level and uh by the time i was up into the 16 i I graduated out of the 16 and unders about 25 in our section in the mid-atlantic section was maryland virginia dc and west virginia Mm -hmm. um so i was still obviously not that good uh, then I moved up into the 18s, still playing only local junior tournaments, so some of the higher level ones by that point. Um, and I actually uh, finished uh, number two in the section in the 18s. And that uh, allowed me to, to play some of the, the higher level nationals because I qualified off my sectional ranking. And I was lucky enough to, to qualify for the clays, uh, clay courts in Florida and Kalamazoo, which is... Uh, sort of the, the the big tournament in the u.s for for juniors which is a really cool experience and i got to go and even win a match so i was just happy to be able to play in them at that point uh, it was just really cool and uh from there i uh, i started looking at some schools um maybe to play college tennis and 
the that year they had changed the rule where you could only uh, take off six months uh, between your high school graduation and uh, when you got enrolled in college. Uh, otherwise, you would start to lose eligibility. Hmm. Um, so I was the first year affected by that, which was sort of unfortunate because I wanted to play as much as possible after I decided to take a, a year off, which some other people had done. And uh, I could only play tournaments for six months um, after. Otherwise, I would have lost the eligibility. So I did that. I would have been young enough to play junior tournaments because I graduated fairly early for past the six-month period. But then I, I had to stop and uh, just train. And uh, I st- kept looking at schools, and uh, I just decided uh, to, to wait, and I wanted to, to see how I'd fare on the on the pros after that. So uh, that's pretty much where I've been uh, the last uh, two or three years. Yeah, Colin, very interesting about the uh, the six-month rule. I definitely didn't know that, and I'm sure not a lot of other people don't. So, I mean, I guess looking back on that, I guess another reflective question, like, uh, are, are you happy with you know, the choice to go for it? Because, I mean, obviously, you don't always get a, a chance. Like, you can look back on it and say, oh, I, I wish I had gone to college. Or uh, you, alternatively, you can, if you went to college, you could say, oh, I, I wish I tried for the tour. So, I mean, you know, you're pretty pleased with your decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you're only uh, young enough to play pro tennis once, but you can always go to college. And uh, that's what my, my parents have been very supportive about it. And, uh, I I feel like if uh, if it doesn't work out on the tennis tour, I can always go back to school. So I, I'd like to go for it while I can, and uh, I've enjoyed it uh, every step of the way. Yeah, that's great. And yet, you know, I'm looking into your your record. You've you've moved up you know hundreds of spots within the last few years. So it's definitely I definitely liking the progression. I'm sure you'll keep going up. Um, and so I get you touched on this a little bit, um, but maybe you can even more. Um, yeah, a lot of people look on tennisrecruiting.net these days and they're like, oh, this guy's a three-star, he's a five-star, he's a blue chip. So uh, what, what was cool for me is I looked you up on tennisrecruiting.net and you were a three-star. Um, you know, I guess you are now on it or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, as far as your training, what do you think was the most important aspect of your training that propelled you to uh, the elite levels of tennis from that three-star, quote, status? Uh, yeah, it's you definitely don't see too many uh, uh, pro players uh, with the with the three star rating. It, it's pretty unusual because usually they they start at four years old and they're they're phenoms growing up. They're topping the juniors and so on. Right. Um, usually five star blue chips or or beyond, uh, where they have rankings when they're very young. So that's that's definitely uh, uh, unusual. And uh, I would just attribute it to uh, a lot of practice. I always loved it so much. I would want to be on the court for six seven eight hours i mean until i couldn't literally couldn't swing the racket anymore i would i would be practicing and uh sticking with the lefty forehand uh just uh, i feel like that's helped me a lot um to be different and uh some great people helped me along the way um, coaches my parents always my brother and uh it's just uh, a lot of a lot of hard work and practice and uh sticking with it and so I, this may be hard to quantify for you but would you say it was mostly yeah like your your training was it is it mostly uh drilling or is it mostly um like competitive sets or I'm just trying to figure out like what maybe um maximize your development or maybe it was just everything I, I would say it was a little bit of everything i I always loved tournaments uh competitive person and uh I always found those to be the most fun but at the same time, you you want to drill and, and make yourself better so that you can do better in the tournaments. Um, so I've done a lot of everything, a lot of uh, different different sort of 
unusual things in my training, sort of unorthodox since I started late and I, I didn't really uh, do really full-time training right away. So uh, my dad would come up with funny things where I would practice my serve in the driveway because we didn't have a court or anything, but it was sort of a big driveway. And he, he created a, a service cage, which uh, uh, try to explain it. It's it, uh, the bottom bar uh, was about the height of the net, mm. and and the top bar was maybe a, a foot or two above that. And we we had gone to the court, and he measured uh, how high over the net the the ball would uh, would go and still go in. Wow! And then we put the bar right at that level, so that we knew okay, if you clear the net above that first bar, but it's below the other bar in that window, if you will, then the serve would be in. So that allowed me to practice my serves just in the driveway um, in the beginning when I wouldn't have otherwise had access to a court so easily. And uh, just just fun stuff like that where uh, I would just serve on that for an hour or two and uh, I wouldn't even realize how much better I was getting until I went to the court. And I'm like, wow, this is this, this really helps. Or just uh, one one winter we had a, we have a barn on our uh, property in Maryland and we'd put up some some hay bales as the net and bring the ball machine in. And uh, the the barn was just wide enough to be a tennis court, but uh, it wasn't long enough. So I would just hit volleys over the the hay bales and practice volleys like that. So sort of unorthodox things that uh, I feel helped me in the end and uh, stuff that sort of uh, behind the scenes. Wow, Colin. I mean, that's that's really incredible. I just, you know, love the improvisation and major props to uh, Mr. Johns for uh constructing that uh you know whole apparatus thing that you used uh that that's really cool i mean i love how uh you know you you find creative ways to train uh even if you don't have access to courts you can find other ways to practice your game um i mean personally i i live in an apartment right now and i actually go to the garage the parking garage and uh just practice my uh strokes and serve down there hopefully i'm not waking up uh anybody but um, (laughs) because you do it at night um but yeah just awesome awesome stuff so well done on that um so now shifting to the uh futures tour so i guess for uh listeners who don't really know too much about the futures tour can you uh kind of describe what that's all about uh, yeah, I'd say the best comparison would be uh, the minor leagues of, of baseball, where uh, you're just uh, you're fighting it out in the in the lower levels, just trying for points. Uh, certainly not making money, and just trying to accumulate enough points to get to that next level, which would be challengers, and then eventually lower level ATP events. So to put it in perspective to, to people who don't really know much, uh, a grand slam has uh, two thousand points if you if you win the tournament, and a futures tournament. If you win the tournament, you get 27 points, um, or uh, even 18 points if it's a uh, if it's a lower level. At the lowest level, it, it would be 18 points, and just one point if you win one round in the futures tour. So uh, it's definitely a long ways below uh, what you aspire to get to, but uh, it's the first rung of the ladder, and that's where you you see uh, everyone start at. I mean, uh, even the guys that are at the top of the game now, Nadal and so on, they played their first tournaments probably when they were. Fourteen, fifteen, of course, but, but uh, that's the first level that uh, of the pros that you would uh, start at. That's a great summary of the Futures Tour. Yeah, when mentioning uh, all the greatest starting there, I mean, I I do remember reading something about Nadal where he 
he was vying for his first ATP point, and then he got kind of nervous and lost uh, in three sets and like a third set tiebreak or something. He was really disappointed, mm-hmm. but eventually he got obviously his points <laughs> yeah. uh, and much more. Um, so yeah, I mean the futures tour is really a grind, and I mean everyone starts somewhere, obviously, and um, so that's tough. And there's also, I guess, qualification rounds if if you know if needed to get into the main draw. Yeah, in the beginning, of, of course, you have to you come through the qualifying and just to get into the main tournament, and so you're not vying for any points for a few rounds. Uh, and some of these, the qualifying is by no means easy. You have to beat some some uh, ranked people, and especially uh, early in the year, the qualifying can be quite difficult. You see some players that were, were high, more highly ranked, and they they got injured or whatnot, and uh, still many many good players you have to beat just to get into the main tournament. And a couple of questions on that. I have seen, like, it's kind of weird for me. Some of these players who are actually, like, they actually play the qualification round and then they end up being, like, seated number one in the main draw. Is that just because they've uh, registered late to the tournament? Or Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. Yeah, they, they would have been direct acceptances if they had registered on time. Um, but either they forgot or they just decided to go late. And what you can do is you can sign in for the qualifying and if there aren't enough people to fill it, then you'll be the number one alternate to get in. And then you just have to, to win a few matches and get into the main draw, which they usually do because they're highly ranked. And then they'll come in to the, the main draw as a qualifier, but actually get seated. So you see that from time to time. Interesting. Thanks for uh, explaining that, Colin. And um, so I guess the purses for these uh, the, these tournaments, the prize money is uh, usually either 10K or 15K. Is that right? Um, they actually uh, raised the prize money this year, this uh, this past year. Uh, that's what it was. It was 10s and 15s. Uh, this year, they raised the uh, 15s to 25Ks. And next year, they'll be raising the 10s to 15s. So uh, it's been a long time since they've uh, increased prize money at this level. Um, but they finally uh, did it a little bit. So uh, that's uh, it's helpful uh, for the players, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's I'm really glad that they're they're at least, you know, raising the money uh you know, the stakes, because, um, I mean, it, it's tough, you know, there's a lot of costs associated with uh, playing on the Futures Tour, and I guess, you know, professionally overall. Um, I guess, can you describe some of the major costs associated with playing on the Tour, on these tournaments? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's it's a very costly sport, of course, because you're playing against uh, players all over the world, and you have to travel to these tournaments to, to get points. And, of course, you have the flights, uh, the hotel, because the unless uh, some tournaments have what's called plus H plus hospitality, where they'll pay for uh, your hotel or nice. they'll give you or they'll give you housing, but those are those are rare. So you usually have to foot the bill with the uh, the hotel, and uh, as well as uh, food when you get there and stringing, because uh, you can't really bring your string machine with you unless you get a, a mini portable one, which a few guys do. Um, and then of course you have to pay for your strings unless you have a string sponsor, rackets. And just uh, other little things, of course, taxi, taxi from the airport and just uh, anything associated with with traveling or a bus, buses across the country. You try to save money like that. But uh, the, the primary cost is the the flights and the hotel. And of course, if you want to travel with a coach, that would make it much more costly. And uh, that you don't see that as much because of the cost unless uh, the, the federation of the country is paying for it or they have a, a wealthy sponsor or something like that just just because of the cost that it would take to, to have a coach travel with you full-time 
Interesting. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about the uh, coaching aspect, but you pretty much read my mind. Um, so do you uh, you ever try to split costs with players? You like staying in the same uh, hotel room or something like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you meet friends you see at the tournaments a lot. And uh, I have some of my best friends that are from all over. The, I mean, Australia, Israel, uh, Germany and, and all over. And uh, you get to see them at the tournaments. You you room together and play doubles together and that that's a that's a fun part of it um definitely to help the cost as well and uh it makes traveling a lot easier if you got someone to to keep you company that's awesome and another thing is so i recognize that you're um like right around like you know hovering around a thousand um mm-hmm. which you know i mean it's extremely tough in itself to even get to that point so how many points is that around uh, right now, I, I think I have eight points, and that puts me a little over a thousand in the world. Um, so it, it's difficult for sure. Just because uh, you win matches doesn't doesn't mean you'll you'll be up uh, ranked high right away. You gotta not just uh, win some matches, but win a lot of matches and make it deep into tournaments to to really break into that top thousand or you know, top five hundred more so. Um, so even even if you do well, you still got to do even better. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I don't want to like crush people's dreams but i mean i just want to you know emphasize that it is extremely tough to get one atp point i mean you see like some threads online about how like oh i'm a four or five like can i get an atp point but i mean it's like these players are the best in the world a lot of them are like top college players and um even to get one point against like you know uh in the in these tournaments is extremely difficult so i mean and you've got to go through qualities like colin said and so it's you know it's not easy so what is the most important thing that you've learned playing uh in these futures tournaments on how to succeed uh it's a it's a lot uh mental and going into each match not taking it for granted because everyone's good there there are no easy matches out there just uh staying staying mentally tough throughout the matches and uh, going in prepared, be being as prepared as you can be, because uh, the conditions are often not the greatest. But whether the courts or it's windy or the weather or it's it's always something every week, and you got to be able to adjust to it and uh, do what you can with what you have. I appreciate that advice. And um, you know, speaking of uh, different court conditions and things like that, have you found some futures tournaments to be? you know, in like really pretty subpar conditions. Have you been in any, any crazy, like any tournaments that you can describe? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, if, if I, I mean, the, most people watch uh, the U S open or Wimbledon where courts are pristine and, uh, they're, they're, they're living the life, but in the, the futures it's, it's anything but where, <laughs> I mean, you got cracks in the court. Um, it's one tournament I went to in Mexico. They had just painted the court, not resurfaced the court but wow. just painted it three days before. So <laughs> as we were playing on the court, the paint was coming off and, it, and the, the court was very slippery. It was sort of like dust. And then uh, one of the tournaments in Israel, they were having a sandstorm the week of the tournament and there was uh, dust all over the court and it's really slip, slippery. And uh, other courts with cracks, uh, some clay courts that, that resemble more like a, a nice skating rink. They're so slippery. <laughs> and... Uh, just it's just crazy stuff um that you'd only see at that level um that people don't really realize but uh everyone's playing in the same conditions so you just try to think of it that way and uh and try to do the best with what you have 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, to be honest, pretty pretty funny those those uh, stories. But I mean, like you said, you just have to grind, and um, it's the same for everybody. So you just got to do your best and persevere so you can reach the next level. And actually, you know, sorry to jump back a tiny bit to the uh, prize money portion, but in my opinion, it seems like they they're not really paying too much for uh you know all the work that you guys put in. I mean, it's it's tough, I guess, but you know, if you like win a couple rounds, say you make the quarters, isn't that only like a few hundred bucks? Or I mean, what's the usual payout? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty uh pretty low, and uh, it's it's sort of sad that it's not more because. It's definitely not easy to get to this level where very, very uh, top percentile of, of uh, tennis players and not getting much back. I mean, it's it's hard. It's a tough solution, but the, the top player, it's very top top heavy. The the top uh, the prize money. I mean, uh, most of the prize money goes to the top hundred players and uh, top two hundred players. To make a living, you got to be at least top two hundred, and to make a good living, you have to be top fifty. Um, if you if you make the quarterfinals of a futures tournament, you get after tax maybe between three hundred four hundred dollars, hmm. cer- certainly not more. And uh, first round loss will leave you with uh, maybe a hundred bucks. So uh, even if you win the tournament, um, maybe maybe a thousand after tax. Um, so that's not gonna get you far with your travel and and everything you need to pay for. So uh, the the next level of challengers is a little better. You can start to make a little bit. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of players have to do other things where they play, play money tournaments where the money's a little better. Try to make some that way, or uh, teach when they're uh, when they're at home. And uh, you, you, it it's it's really tough um, with the money. You're not really going to make money at this level. You're really out there for the points and uh, just trying to get to that next level where you can start to make some money and uh, work your way up. Yeah, I mean it's just so difficult. And I mean if you think about it, like. For some some players have to support themselves through teaching, so I mean, then that lessens the uh, availability for their training schedule, and it's you know more stress on them. And I mean, it's really tough. But uh, you know, I, I think an argument that some people have made—I forget if the ITF made that too—is like I guess it's kind of the, the lower prize money is partially to maybe weed out those who don't, I guess who they think won't make the higher levels. I don't know. But I guess in general, like, do you think, um, I mean, do you think that the uh, pay structure should be, you know, even higher or, I mean, what are your thoughts kind of on, on the whole thing? I mean, they're trying, but uh. they're trying. There's been a, a long debate over that with the players uh, talking about it in the ITF and uh, the ATP. And you can see where they're coming from. I mean, the the futures it, we don't get many spectators, very rarely, and, and yeah. it's tough to get sponsors and stuff. Um, but the the level of play is is quite good. I mean, the there are guys that have played in Grand Slams that you'll see in these tournaments that are the seeds, or or guys that are going to are working their way up that you'll see playing on TV someday. So I think if uh, if you really think about it, investing a little bit more, even a little bit more, would go a long way. Um, just to to double the prize money or or something like that would help enormously. Um, I think that they could do it, and uh, it would it would help to to maybe produce some players that would not have otherwise made it, and uh, that end up quitting as, because they they run out of funds. So I think it's a tough question, um, but at least the ITF is moving in the right direction, raising the prize money a little bit. Um, but uh, we'll, uh, certainly hope that they'll they'll do more in the future. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so too. I mean, it's a tough situation, but hopefully if um they can keep 
moving in this direction, that would be great. What are some other things you think can be done to to make things better for the players um, in futures and challenger tournaments, if any? Uh, the the raising money would help a lot, and, as well as providing more tournaments with hospitality or housing, because that that cuts out the hotel and the or the the housing cost. Um, which does help a lot, especially if it's in, in a country where the hotel is quite expensive. Um, possibly uh, helping out some more players, from with the, whether it's the, the federation from the country or uh, providing them with some, with some training some of the year. Um, the, the USTA does do that for some American players, but it's, it's mostly the, the high-end players that they feel are, are, have a chance to someday be top 100 or, or a it's very sort of an elitist uh, mindset. It's, it's less so in some other countries, but USTA is finally uh, uh, doing doing a little bit more where they're going to try to help some top 500 players. But I think that would help to, to bring up a lot more players and uh, more of a to raise the level for everyone rather than just focus on the top. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I, I did hear that they're building, I guess, a new USTA, like huge facility in, in uh, Orlando or something like that. And uh I don't know. I was wondering if maybe like you think you would train there. Have you heard anything about that? Or yeah, yeah, that it's a very, very large facility that they're they're building now. I think it's supposed to be done near the end of the year uh, this year. Uh, I haven't heard a whole lot about uh, the the training opportunities there. Um, they're moving their their whole national center there from Boca Raton, uh, where it is right now. Um, but hopefully uh, they'll, they'll be more inclusive to, to some lower-ranked players and uh, obviously love to, to, to get some better training because uh, a lot of players struggle with that where they have one or two other guys that they can practice with and maybe a coach. And, but it's, it's very uh, divided throughout the country. Obviously, the U.S. is a big country. It's, it's easier if it's a smaller country like Spain where you can travel um, to, to a couple places that have a lot more players to train with and such. Um, but hopefully, uh, it'll make it more centralized with this, this new center and it's supposed to be really nice with a a lot of courts and, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that'd definitely be awesome. And, uh, you're in Florida right now. Like, are you training in a specific, uh, academy or something like that, or just kind of with with your friends or, um, there, there are a couple players in the area that, that, uh, come in and out. But right now I'm primarily with, uh, my coach. Uh, he played on the tour and still does a little bit. Uh, Jesse Witten made the U S open, uh, third round, uh, a few years back and lost in four sets to Djokovic. So, uh, he's, uh, got up to 160 in the world. So very, very good player. And, uh, he's coaching me right now and, uh, it's been going well. So, uh, just, uh, working with him mostly. Oh, that's awesome. It's great to have uh, Jesse as your coach. I remember actually, I think I was a ball kid at the 18 Clays in DC for uh, his match when he played in the finals. And I think he did he play in Kentucky? Uh, yeah, he, he played four years at Kentucky. Right, right. And if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember, um, but there was a video, I think, with him and another player where it was like 6 5 in the third set. Uh, five serving six and the guy uh they called a foot fault on the guy and he went berserk i don't know if you saw that youtube video but i think it was his match uh, i don't think i've seen it okay. i wouldn't be surprised yeah it's ridiculous but um i also do want to ask you um what are like a couple of your favorite point patterns that you utilize um you know to to win points oh yeah sure uh 
you, you definitely uh, look to, to perfect your patterns because uh, it gives you something to, to really look for before the point starts, keep it simple, and that you can uh, just run over and over um, that work over and over. Um, one would be just to, to kick the ball wide in the ad court since I'm right-handed, and that usually gets them off the court. You get something in the middle and, and pull the ball the other side of the court, keep them on the run. Uh, or same thing on the other side where you slice it wide, get them off the court, and then you can play behind them or at the open court. Um, those are two of the typical ones. Or maybe you jam them to the body and uh, get something to the middle and, and play behind with the open court. Just uh, always, uh, especially off your serve, you, you look for those patterns. And even off the return where it's sort of predictable in the second serve, if he's going to kick it to the tee, then you, you take it early you uh, and you come in behind it and, and look for the, a certain volley to a certain place. Um, but the patterns are very important, and uh, I think it's uh, something a lot of club players uh, don't really look for that they could, and uh, it, it could, it'll help anybody. I mean, it, uh, it'll help Federer, it'll help the club player just to, to really know what your patterns are and, and to execute them better and better as you pick up on when you can play them more and more. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. And um, I guess before your matches, do you kind of – you study your opponents if you can and try to figure out strategically like the optimal way to play them and things like that and then execute it in a match? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, some players are, are more uh, where they just like to focus on themselves and like, oh, I'll make him adjust to me and other guys like to, to study them and, and uh, how you're going to play the, the guy you're going to play in the next round. Um, I'm a little bit of, of both where I like to like to see how my opponent plays where one side is clearly weaker or if he has a, a weak second serve or, or something where you can go in thinking, uh, okay, maybe I expose that. But you also don't want to get caught up in that too much where you're focusing on his game and, and not your game and, and you got you to gotta make him adjust to you. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think with most things, like a happy medium is, is the best. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, if you could tell us maybe like a couple of the most important things mentally that uh, that help you uh, perform at your best, like mental attitudes and things like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, preparation is a key part of that. Know that you, you're going into the match as prepared as you can be. That gives you a lot of confidence. And uh, just to, to, to stay calm no matter what is thrown at you, because uh, a lot of things in futures... Uh, won't always go your way in the qualifying, so you call your own line. So uh, sometimes you have people trying to take calls, mm-hmm. or uh, even in the main draw where the, the chair umpire is uh, is giving calls to the local guy, or they're just making genuine errors. Um, but there are many things that can be frustrating. You just got to stay uh, mentally strong and uh, just uh, stick with it. That's really awesome advice. So, uh, yeah, last couple questions for you. So, Colin, what what's your plan to break into the Challenger Tour? I mean, what do you think that you need to do uh, to do that? Um, a couple things, uh, just just small things, because I, I feel like I'm really close. I've had a lot of uh, three setters, especially uh, last year against some some higher ranked guys. And uh, this past week, I uh, I was playing in the futures and played a couple of higher rank guys. Uh, one of them was top 300. I went three sets and I, I had some chances. Um, so just uh, some little things, maybe get the serve a little bit bigger, get a, a little bit stronger, a little bit fitter. And I feel like I'm right there. I have the, the game to, to beat them. It's just uh, getting the experience and uh, making the most of your opportunities. It's awesome. And last question for you, Colin. Um, uh, you know, I usually like to close with uh, like one piece of advice for our audience. So 
what would you say to uh, everyone who who wants to improve their tennis game? What's one thing that you'd uh, tell them that they need to focus on or do? Um, I would say learn the fundamentals uh, really well as early on as you can, um, which is really important for someone like me because I didn't I didn't have that base because um, I didn't start when I was really really young. So every time you do something wrong, you're enforcing uh, a bad habit. But if you if you can in, get it right from the start, then you're enforcing a good habit. So I would say learn the fundamentals um, early on so you don't have to correct um, bad habits later. And that'll go a long way, and you'll help yourself a lot in the long run that way. Awesome. It's very much appreciated. Can you uh, just let us know if there, there's any um, social media pages you have or any other places that you'd like people to you know, contact you or, or view anything that you have, I guess, online or whatever? Uh, I don't really have anything like that right now. Um, no, no really social media pages. Um, I have some friends that do, I haven't really uh, done that yet. Um, maybe at some point, but, uh, uh, no, I appreciate that, but, uh, don't have anything uh, as of now. Oh yeah. No, no worries, man. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate your time, Colin. Uh, it's really wonderful to get your, uh, viewpoint on the futures tour and, and just your, insight into your career and how you really um a very impressive rise from uh starting the game at 14 to uh being on the professional tour and um you know taking these guys or top 300 to the limit it's, it's super impressive so uh you know thanks so much for being on the tennis files podcast and uh, i encourage everybody to follow colin's uh rise and his uh his pretty unique lefty forehand game and, um, you know, I hope to maybe see you in Maryland sometime, Colin. So I uh, just wish you all the best. And uh, thanks a lot for, for your time today. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks a lot, Colin. You got it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast with Colin Johns. I hope you learned a lot from hearing about Colin speak about his career and how he was able to rise quickly from a pretty average junior career to the elite levels of the sport. And I hope you in particular really enjoyed his thoughts and experiences playing on the Futures Tour. Uh, if you guys want to check out the show notes for this episode, you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash eight. And if you want these episodes of the Tennis Files podcast to be downloaded immediately to your podcast app as soon as I publish them, I would encourage you to subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that in iTunes by going to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes, clicking the blue view and iTunes button, and then clicking subscribe. And you can also subscribe in other podcast apps by just finding that subscribe button in the app that you're using. So I definitely appreciate that. And I just want to leave you with a quote from... Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who was a famous German writer and statesman, he said something very powerful. Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. So I think remembering these words will help you prioritize and figure out, you know, really what are the things that are going to push you forward to your goals uh, to reach them. And then what won't really help you reach your goals and then try to eliminate the latter as much as possible. So I want you guys to just focus on doing the things that will 
help you the most. And I really look forward to hearing from you guys about how you're improving your tennis game. And as always, if you have any questions about tennis at all, uh, feel free to message me. Um, my email is mirban at tennisfiles.com. So that's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. So again, uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. I look forward to serving you and helping you improve your tennis game. And I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.